Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. We look at the complex relationship between mountains, wind, rain and plate tectonics. So how does a mountain range form? Well, the answer is actually quite puzzling for geologists and has been for some time. It's a complex system involving erosion, wind, climate change, as well as plate tectonics and buoyancy and a number of other complex factors. So just how do you make sense of mountains and mountain ranges? I want you to take a moment and think about mountains. They can often be imposing, lurching out of the sea to form great mountain ranges or islands like we see in Hawaii or other places. They can divide a continent in half, like they do here in Australia with the Great Dividing Range, or the Alps, or the Himalayas. But another interesting part about mountains is that they can shape the weather around them. Now, I love watching test cricket, and one of the things you get from watching test cricket is seeing great visages of natural scenery from across the world at different stadiums. Take, for example, Cape Town in South Africa. Now, the view across the cricket ground in Cape Town actually gives you great views of Table Mountain. And it's test cricket, so admittedly not a lot happens. So a lot of the time you're watching for days the weather move over that mountain. Like the residents of Cape Town are often very familiar with the clouds that can encompass Table Mountain, roll over it, and change the weather quite rapidly in the area around it. Because the mountains, of course, influence the clouds that form and the way in which the clouds fall over them or tip over them, as often happens in Table Mountain. Now, if you're there playing cricket, that can change the whole dynamics of a game. But can a cloud change the whole dynamics of a mountain and a mountain range? Now, that's one of the actually surprisingly hotly contested areas of geology. And the reason is because, obviously, there's interactions with mountains and clouds. But there's also interactions with mountains forming from plate tectonics. Now, you can also get erosion caused by changing wind patterns or rain or water. And that can, of course, as as you intuitively think, help cut down and carve a path a mountain. So can frozen water, glaciers, do exactly the same thing. So wind, rain, water, both solid and liquid, even in the gaseous state of vapour, can influence and shape a mountain, even though a mountain is hard stone thrust out of the earth. This relationship between mountains, water, air, and what's going on beneath the surface, the plate tectonics, is what has been puzzling scientists and geologists in particular for a long time. And what it really stems around is a question of, can all this atmospheric behaviour not only carve out mountains through erosion, but also pull up mountains out of the ground? And this is where it gets pretty interesting. Now, in the 1960s, when plate tectonics really became quite well understood, this revolutionised our idea about mountains and also the way in which the Earth itself works. But... It helped us understand how mountains can be formed. Basically, large chunks of our top surface of our plates crash into each other. They can drive in both large vertical and horizontal movements parts of the lithosphere upwards, creating all kinds of different features, not just earthquakes, ocean basins, but also mountains and mountain ranges. So plate tectonics is well understood to be quite important. But scientists were trying to think about what could be other mechanisms for helping drive the motion of rock mountains upwards. It's a, it's a basic framework that explains, sure, how you get a lot of mass moving up and so on. 
and you have to have a convergence of plate tectonics. You can normally get them when plates collide into each other, they slide down, subduct, or one goes down, one goes up. The upper plate is thickened as a result, and the magma underneath begins to melt, and you get the things forming. You can also have plates colliding into each other where neither plate actually subducts or goes down, but the mountain actually grows as a result of it. That's how you get things like the Tibetan Plateau and the Himalayas. Two plates smoosh into each other, and instead of one plate going down into the magma underneath the crust, well, they both just go upwards, creating a mountain range. That certainly is an important way of helping form a mountain. But climate is more deeply interconnected to us than we might think. Mountains can lift up winds that flow over them, like we spoke about earlier. And that causes more rainfall or increased precipitation on the range's windward slopes. So you get intensified erosion on one side. That's called orography. You can also end up with this rain shadow, which creates deserts on the other side of the mountain. You can see a similar thing happen in North America, where you get California and then Nevada and Arizona on the other side of the great mountain ranges of the Rockies with different weather patterns as a result. Also, of course, elevation, the higher a mountain is, you get changed temperatures. Average temperatures decrease as you go up higher and higher. So then you get less vegetation. Less vegetation means you're more likely to have more erosion or get more things like glaciers. And that also then rapidly increases erosion. And that means that as a mountain grows, it actually starts to grow its own changing climate specifically for that region. And it starts to influence the climate around it. Now that makes it really difficult to study because you can't have a global or a macro understanding of this mechanism because there's so many factors at play. And this is where it becomes a control systems problem, my expertise, because you need to try and model all the inputs and then try and predict an output. The problem is, it's not as simple as that because the inputs start playing and interrupting each other, leading to incredibly complex results. You might think you only have two or three variables, but then it becomes incredibly complex because they effectively play off against each other, sometimes entering feedback loops with amplify or change a certain response. We call these things negative feedback loops or positive feedback loops, something that has a reinforcement which amplifies or increases something or decreases something. The rain shadow that we talked about, where the climate on the imagined wind approaching and raining on one side of the mountain, no wind or changed wind, and big drought shadow on the other side of the mountain. That can fundamentally change the shape of a mountain range, but also the climates around it, which then in turn changes further climate in interruptions. You can end up with a huge rain shadow, for example, north of the Himalayas, that created the really high standing, but relatively flat area of the Tibetan Plateau. That's an example of a positive feedback loop, a rain shadow in a mountain range. How do you try and piece together this black box of all these interconnected systems working together with each other? Now, this is where it becomes incredibly tricky. What do you pick as your study point? And that's where it's difficult. There's not many examples where you can just say, I want to control for only one variable, or I want to take away a variable to try and better understand this complex problem. That's normally how you approach solving something that's multidimensional like this. The problem is, 
finding a mountain that has a pretty stable climate or doesn't have any other mountains around it influencing its climate can be tricky. Often, researchers turn to, say, Hawaii, because the mountains in Hawaii are volcanically frosted upwards. So you can try and control for other variables. You've basically got an ocean all around and just one mountain range. Might be useful to try and study, but it has its own drawbacks as well. So let's come back now to another important geological concept, icostasy. Now, I know we think about the Earth as solid, but it's not really. The crust of the Earth floats on the denser, fluid-like mantle below it. So think about this. All of the Earth's surface is floating on magma. Now, sometimes that magma can sort of punch fluid and influence or create volcanoes and other mountain ranges. And we've talked about subduction and other movement plate tectonic influences. But just coming back to the floating analogy here, because it is floating on a denser fluid-like mantle underneath it. And the issue is, if you're balancing anything on water, if you change the weight on the top, well, it will float slightly higher. You change the buoyancy of that plate of the Earth's crust in that area. So changing the weight of something influences its height level. An iceberg is a really good example of this because an iceberg is about 90% as dense as water and there's ice above the water surface and there's often a whole lot underneath. But the changing surface on the top of the iceberg, if it melts or changes and you go from having solid ice to liquid water, you end up with density change as well. And then you can see icebergs sort of lifting up. And also the iceberg exists a lot of it underwater. So if you change what it, the weight of the iceberg, you might see it rise or fall. Same thing is happening with our plates inside the mantle, the fluid-like magma underneath the crust. So that means if you change the weight of a mountain range, perhaps through something like erosion, what you're actually going to do is make it lighter. If you make it lighter, well, it'll actually start to lift up. That is pretty mind-bending to think about. Eroding a mountain can actually cause it to lift itself up slightly. So icosocy basically is a key mechanism that links mountains tectonical or internal evolution to its external development. Basically you get climate happening. Mountains start to erode, removes mass. The principle of icosy actually responds by lifting up the mountain range to replace about 80% of the mass removed. This uplift helps us explain how we get this feedback loop involved in mountains sort of starting to lift themselves up without any plate tectonics. And researchers in the United States have been studying this. For example, the Appalachian Mountain Range on the eastern coast of the United States. It's actually pretty central, part of the interior of the North American plate. It's not near any boundaries, but with high precision surveys that they've been doing there now for years, they've been noticing that it's actually been starting to lift up slightly and slightly. So how do these mountains lifting themselves? Well, the erosion of these mountain ranges is actually causing the mountains themselves to get lighter and thus lifted. Now, of course, all these things take place over a very, very long time. And Icosy can prop up a mountain and lift them up for a while and make them higher and higher and higher. But the problem is the more you lift them up, the more they are exposed to erosion. The more they're exposed to erosion, the faster they'll lift, but there'll be less and less of them there. And eventually they will decay and erode completely and not be a mountain anymore. Maybe they'll sink a little bit at that point too. Australia is a good example of an old decaying landscape. There's parts of these areas that perhaps experienced tectonic uplift hundreds of millions of years ago. But now they're slowly, slowly lifting themselves up further and further as they get eroded more and more. They've had millions of years to do this. 
but eventually those mountains will erode away and not be able to lift themselves up so much and will gradually erode and decay instead of being giant pigs to be more lulling hills. All this information that we now know about mountains and the complexities of how a mountain can be formed and can change over time with interconnected systems between plate tectonics, buoyancy and weather and erosion. They're all tying and feeding back into each other. The question about where Earth's mountains come from still puzzles geologists. And you can get a feel for why it's so puzzling to them because it's so complex to try and understand. Now, 40 million years ago, everyone's pretty sure there was an anomalous surge of tectonic activity and huge amounts of mountain building. Now, the problem is, at the same time, in that geological period, there was a major climate shift on Earth, a lot of cooling that transformed Greenland and Antarctica from temperate vegetated areas to permanent ice sheets, creating huge glaciers that covered a lot of the North American continent and Europe for around 2 million years. So, with all of this in mind, and also knowing the huge tectonic uplifts that were happening at the time. How was our climate and continents changed in those past 40 million years to create all this mountain building? Let's see the two things that could have gone down. The mountain building could have caused the global climate shift or the climate shift could have caused the surge of mountain building. This is basically which way do you think is more constructive for forming a mountain? Do you think that the climate influenced the mountain to grow, or do you think the mountains actually influence the climate? And these two theories are all around the interplay about which factor is more dominant. This is basically the problem that geologists have been studying. It's kind of a cause and effect ambiguity. It's a bit like a chicken and egg question. And the problem is we don't really have tools to understand that in a serious way. Now that's just a question about a particular point in Earth's history, 40 million years ago or so. But the larger question stands, which is the more dominant factor in helping guide the evolution of mountains? Now, there's no shortage of models seeking to explain this. The problem is to validate any of these models, you need precise data. You need control data that can eliminate unwanted variables to really peer into the result you're trying to investigate or prove convincingly one way or the other. That's where researchers like Dr. Byron Adams from Bristol University have been investigating, published in the journal Science Advantage. Now, Adams worked with a team including Whipple, Fort, Heismarth, and Voges. Worked together from a variety of universities, including Arizona State University and Louisiana State University. And they were studying in particular the central and eastern Himalayan mountains, the region around Bhutan and Nepal. Now, one of the reasons they chose this is because it's become one of the most sampled landscapes for erosion rate studies. So by trying to get a detailed look at erosion, they were hoping to prove one way or another the influence of erosion and if it was leading to the sucking up or creation of mountains. And the way they did this was using cosmic clocks within grains of sand to measure the speed at which the rivers eroded the rocks beneath them. Now this sounds crazy, but it's actually a little bit simpler than you may think. Now, when a cosmic particle from the sun or from outer space hits a grain of sand on the hill slope, 
they sort of get embedded in. They get trapped. And when that particle then runs off down the hill slope through erosion, you can actually check the way it's changed over time and where it ends up. Now, by looking for some of these rare elements and counting how many of these atoms are in this element present in a grain of sand, you can get a really precise dating method of that particular part of erosion and when that erosion came off. You can collect erosion rates from all over the mountain range. Then you can compare them with the river's steepness and the rainfall over time. Even then, that's not easy, because there's a lot of factors interconnected here. Weather and climate, as we talked about, are deeply interconnected with the world around them. So how you try and piece those together requires some pretty serious regression models to actually model how a river erodes. But once you have a model, and precision sampled by measuring certain isotopes in the grounds of sand from the erosion points, you can actually start to build a precise model that accounts for rainfall, rainfall patterns, what that does for erosion, how those rivers formed, and what influence it would have on the mountains around them. With any modeling exercise, you actually build lots of different models, compare and see which one fits best, and that helped them find what the actual correlating factors were. Now what they found is that erosion rate is nonlinear related to fluvial relief and proportionally set by the mean rainfall. Now what this means is that if you have an understanding of the rainfall of an area, or mean rainfall of an area, if you understand the way rivers are formed and water runoff and erosion is formed in those areas as well, say through their isotope dating method for the sand in the runoff, then you can piece these together to understand the connection between plate tectonic and uplift and also the erosion-based uplift of the mountain ranges. They use the Himalayan mountain ranges because erosion is pretty well constrained. The water runoff goes somewhere where you can capture it and collect and analyze the data. And that enabled them to validate their model. They're shown here really that the high rains, the monsoons in Bhutan, can really help explain why it's so steep beyond just the plate tectonics of uplifting these mountains. You actually end up with high rock uplift rates and high wild rainfall rates working together to create what we see in the Himalayas of this strong mountain uplift due to erosion. So it's a good way of exploring the way that climate can actually sharply change the face of the earth by lifting mountains out of the ground via eroding them. And it's a complicated area to think about, starting with the thought of a mountain encased in cloud and the way in which that mountain erodes and changes over time can lead to more of that mountain being lifted up out of the ground and created. So what happened 40 million years ago, we're still not quite sure which one exactly came first, but we now have a new method here proposed in this paper that helps us track and analyze the way in which rainfall and erosion can guide and uplift mountains and change the climate around them as well, further amplifying that effect in a positive feedback loop. Some great research published in the journal Science Advances about how mountain ranges can be influenced and shaped by the climate around them and even lifted up whilst eroding. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. The complex relationship between erosion, lifting up mountains, plate tectonics, pushing up mountains, and climate change all over millions and millions of years. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.